Welcome to another episode of On Stage at HousingWorks Bookstore Cafe, a bi-weekly podcast showcasing some of the events at our downtown Manhattan bookstore. In this episode, we're featuring three events from the end of March. Everything We Can See in the Universe Glows with Jin Dilling Martin and Jonathan Myberg, Sarah Gerard and Justin Taylor in conversation, and Tumblr presents Nina McLaughlin's Hammerhead Launch Party. I'm podcast producer Colin Drowen, and I'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. Until then, enjoy! On March 23rd, we hosted Jin Dilling Martin and musician Jonathan Myberg to talk about the poetry and music inspired by animals in nature, to celebrate the release of Martin's debut book of poems, We Mammals in Hospitable Times. Here, Martin reads Reasons to Consider Setting Ourselves on Fire, and the conversation leads to Rilke's famous poem, The Panther. This is called Reasons to Consider Setting Ourselves on Fire. Maybe, Pilgrim, if I permit you to sleep on my floor tonight, tomorrow every house on this block will burn to the ground except mine. Never mind that we've rocketed beyond the age of miracles, that snorting herds of swine no longer drown themselves en masse in Middle Eastern seas, that gone are men in woolen robes riding immortal white camels, gone to those who knelt before them in dirt. Gone is the dirt, so holiness must be sought in other fertile crescents. Tricky, isn't it, when we don't even know what a hair shirt looks like? Any given window could be a one-way mirror behind which God sits watching. Any given person cuts a path to a more perfect place. Undoubtedly, the polar bears at the zoo both dream that all other animals will discover upon waking their bodies buried in snow. Response, Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking those polar bears are still on the job now, right? They, they the are. The same ones? Yeah, yeah. So that's, that's a, a, a wistful but maybe darkly optimistic imagining of what the life of the polar bears is like. Um, but Jonathan suggested introducing another very famous caged animal poem, which will bring us to the darkest moment of the evening. Well, it, it ponders... You can change um, to the, the visual for this one. <laughs> You know, as as human beings, I think we've we have moved away from the animal world in the last couple of centuries, um, a lot. But we seem to be sort of moving back to it a little bit. Also, it seems that every um, we kind of departed from it in the with the age of of reason, and then have have slowly clawed our way back using the tools of reason. So it seems like every week there's another study about animal consciousness and how similar it is to ours, and what animals dream about what animals perceive, um, in some ways is this great unknowable. Um, but in other ways, it, it seems like the answer is just, what's it, what do you think about? What's it like to be you? Um, because we're, we're not that different. I mean, people, we're certainly far more closely related to that guy than we are to um, the parrots that we're actually able to talk to. Hmm. Um, or uh, we were talking about hmm. this earlier, people freak out about humans being related to other primates, but it, it's... I always think, are they ready for the fact that we're also, you know, what about the frogs <laughs> <laughs> and the lizards and the, and the, and the single-celled organisms? That, yeah. that statistic gets trotted out about you sharing 98% of your DNA with a chimp, but 60-something percent with a banana. S wait, with a what? A banana. 60% with a banana? 
I don't know if this is true. This is just the... (laughs) No matter what, though, I mean, the universal genetic code does, you know... Did you just make that up right now? I did not make it up. (laughs) Well, I mean, somebody might have, based on... Maybe not based on fact. Uh But the poem that we were going to talk about (laughs) is the Rainer Maria Rilke uh, Rilke poem, The Panther, which is about... uh, well, you actually know the, the backstory on this. Uh, I, all I know is that it was about a panther that he looked at in the zoo in Paris. Uh, yeah, so he became friends with Rousseau, who um, found Rilke to be so in his head and so dreamy and was like, man, you got to get with the real world. And he instructed Rilke to go to the, the Jardin, the, the like, zoo of Paris, and pick any animal and then just study it for like a month and then write a poem about it, and Rilke picked the panther and then wrote his incredibly famous poem, The Panther, which I think uh, Jonathan will read the most famous translation of, and then we'll, we'll do a couple other versions of So, The Panther. His vision from the constantly passing bars has grown so weary that it cannot hold anything else. It seems to him there are a thousand bars, and behind the bars, no world. As he paces in cramped circles over and over, the movement of his powerful soft strides is like a ritual dance around a center in which a mighty will stands paralyzed. Only at times, the curtain of the pupils lifts quietly, an image enters in, rushes down through the tensed, arrested muscles, plunges into the heart, and is gone. And if you've seen, uh, especially cats do this, or wild dogs in in captivity, um, they'll start doing a thing where they just pace around the perimeter of their enclosure. And they'll just wear a little path and just pace it and pace it and pace it. Um, I remember seeing a snow leopard in the San Antonio Zoo doing that. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's just something that animals and people do when they go insane, which is what he's describing. On March 25th, Sarah Gerard and Justin Taylor were in conversation about Gerard's debut novel, Binary Star. Here, Gerard reads from her book. So Binary Star is my book. <laughs> um, it's about this, uh, this woman who's anorexic. She goes on a road trip with her boyfriend who's alcoholic, and they, um, their first real stop is in Portland. So let me do this first. We decided to use our tent for the first time in the woods outside Portland. That afternoon, we visited a small zine distributor run out of a ramshackle building set back from the road in a quiet part of town. We have a hard time finding it, but John eventually recognizes it from a picture he finds online on his phone. Closer to the road, there's a Chipotle on one side and a Moe's Southwest Grill on the other. Sometimes, signs are easy to, easy to miss if you don't know where to look for them. In two rooms at the back of the otherwise empty unit, we find wooden boxes holding stapled together multicolored booklets and racks of zines on natural birth control, the Zapatistas, Chomsky, bicycle culture, and primitivism. We pay in cash, and John listens to the only employee talk about animal liberation for almost an hour while I continue to browse. Big ag, prisoners, sentient beings, violence, Monsanto, mass extinction. The guy convinces him to buy two more books, both about veganism and a book by John Zerzan. He offers us bottles of the Abyss, a locally brewed imperial stout from a cooler under the desk, and John accepts, explaining that it would be, that it would be rude not to. I don't say anything. Oh, they made an agreement that they, he, she can't throw up if he, and he can't drink. 
uh, explaining that it would be rude not to. I don't say anything, though I know John expects me to. He and the bookseller drink the beers together, standing in the doorway. On the way to the campsite, John stops at a convenience store and buys a six-pack of the Abyss, promising he'll only have two. It's the end of the day, and we're not going to drive anywhere. I need to relax, he says. But you promised, I lie. It's only two. Don't be a drag. We're in the middle of nowhere. We pitch the tent together, and I walk into the woods, saying I want to be alone. John sits by the bank with the six-pack and takes his shoes off and puts his feet in the icy water, smoking. The day is cold, but the air is humid, and the sun is low and bright as I walk through the trees. I put my hands in my pockets and chew a stick of sugar-free Orbit and breathe deeply. I haven't eaten anything since this morning, but I don't, feel the hung I don't feel hungry. I attribute it to the gum. The forest has a language of its own. At times, I stop chewing to listen. When I return to the campsite, John is talking gibberish. This happens when he takes his pills and then drinks with them, or drinks and then takes his pills, getting ready to go to sleep. Why'd you take them now, I ask. Everyone here is primitive, he says. I sit down next to him on the bank. He hands me a beer. There's nobody here, John. Revolution is a spiral. I don't really want this beer. I haven't eaten anything all day. The people are ready for revolution. His eyes are half open. He struggles to open them more, but succeeds in closing one. Let's go to bed, I say. There's too much to do. I'm not sleeping by the river. It's getting dark. The animals will come out soon. It's always night when the people are sleeping. You're sleeping, I say. No, I'm awake for the first time. He thinks I'm primitive, and I think he's primitive. We stay on the bank. I wonder how I can help him. I open a beer and drink half of it, staring into the blackening water. John opens the last one and drinks half of it. The natives are sleeping, he says. You're an animal. You've kidnapped me here with the natives. How many Seroquel did you take? What and when? Whenever, at one time. This is not a democracy. No, it's not. You're drunk. I want to go to bed. Complete the circle. I'm cold. Please come to bed with me. I wonder if I'm angry. Do I feel it? It isn't too late. There will always be revolution until the rulers fall from orbit. I light a cigarette. I blow smoke into the river, ultralight. I don't want to go to sleep while you're sitting here in the cold. He finishes the last beer and crawls toward the tent. I try to pull him inside by his hands, but he's too heavy. I sleep with him half inside and the door unzipped. This is like being in a treehouse, he says. The water, so this book jumps around in time and space, and um, now she's back on Long Island after the end of the road trip. The water in the walls is a presence in the room. Memory may explain things, or else it may confuse things, which is enlightening. Memory is a curve, a misdirection, a reflection, distorted. I drink a glass of water and look in the mirror. I distort what I see. The next morning, John apologizes for his behavior. I see that he's embarrassed. I'm embarrassed. I look down into the river. Water rushes over a branch that's fallen from an overhanging tree. I'm sorry, too, I say. We agree that it never happened. We agree to let time erase it. All right. Yeah. Trees. Trees. <laughs> and on March 26th, we celebrated the launch of Nina McLaughlin's memoir, Hammerhead, with the help of Tumblr. Here, she gives some background and reads a section from the book. So, um, just a very brief background. I, um, I worked as a journalist and um, quit my job in 2008 and got a job as a carpenter. Um, uh, and I worked for a woman named Mary. Um, the way that the interview process worked for this job, um, she invited um, about six of us, one at a time, to spend half a day of work with her. Um, and so, um, I showed up. Um, having, you know, 
truly no experience um, on this day. Um, we were tiling this bathroom floor in this beautiful house in Cambridge. And um, as we were sort of setting up, she said, all right, you cut, I'll lay. And I was just like, oh no, what? Um, sort of this panic moment of like having to position myself in front of a tile saw, never having done anything, kind of sweating in dry mouth exactly as I am right now. Um, uh, and Mary, Mary's advice was perfect. Um, she just said, don't worry about it, just, just go slow. Um, so I'm just gonna read a quick chunk um, from that, sort of the tail end of that, that interview day. Um, and after, if you guys have questions, I'm happy to answer, and if not, we can all um, just um, get drunk. Um, so, um, all right, uh, so Mary, my boss, um, uh, is out for a smoke break. I looked at the section of floor we'd completed so far. Rain hit the window and pattered on the roof above. Footsteps on the stairs and an old man appeared. He looked a hundred years old with a long white beard and long white hair tied back in a ponytail that hung between his shoulder blades like the tail of something that belonged in snows. He wore light hammer-looped paint-splattered pants and a white t-shirt that hung from his shoulders like a sheet. He carried a paint can and a brush, a dull canvas drop cloth under his arm. He set himself up on the opposite side of the room by one of the dormer windows. Good to see women on the job, he said. I didn't know what to say. It would be clumsy to explain that I wasn't really on the job, just trying out, had only been on the job for a couple of hours, that I didn't know how to read a tape measure. It would be clumsy to say it was good to see a hundred-year-old wizard on the job, too. <laughs> Thanks, I said. It's good to be on the job. When Mary returned from her smoke, we kept working without much talk and finished laying the tile. They needed a night to set before they could be grouted, so we were done for the day. The combination of concentration, newness, of not knowing the rhythm of the day made the minutes swift. Three to four on a Tuesday afternoon at your desk when all you're doing is murdering the minutes. It feels like torture because in the back of our brains, what we know is these hours are our only ones. They are finite and will be finished. A girl I knew once went around to all the guests at a party and told them, one by one, this is your real life, you know. This is your real life. <laughs> what a thing to be reminded of and how easy to, to forget. I liked how the tiles looked on that floor. We packed up the tools, reloaded the van, and I shivered a bit on the ride back. I wondered if I'd botched too many tiles, if my lugging had impressed, if she'd noticed the time I'd gotten out of her light. You freezing, Mary asked, a little chilled. She blasted the heat and the windshield wipers swept across the glass. When we got back to her driveway, I thanked her and she laughed. Thank you, she said, and handed me 70 bucks in cash. That was 10 bucks an hour and it seemed like a lot of money for what I'd done. Go take a hot shower, she said. Get that tile dust out of your hair. I rubbed my palm across my head, damp and gritty. Crumbs of tile dust had adhered to my hair. I thanked her again. Take care, she said. These were final parting words, words you say to someone you don't know and won't see again. I headed home cold and low, a fatigue in my bones from standing all day, and a recognition in those two words that she would hire someone else. Take care. I went to bed early and all the bad thoughts returned as the wind picked up and the rain lashed. Regret, work, money, health insurance, loneliness, missed trains, and empty calendars. 
The next morning, gray but no rain, Mary called. She told me the job was mine if I wanted it. I told her that I did. Thanks. Thank you for listening, and thank you to the staff and volunteers at Housing Works Bookstore that make these events possible, as well as our event partners and attendees and anyone who's ever bought a book, a beer, a sandwich, or anything else at our bookstore. Housing Works is a healing community of people living with and affected by HIV-AIDS. Our mission is to end the dual crises of homelessness and AIDS through relentless advocacy, the provision of life-saving services, and entrepreneurial businesses which sustain our efforts. You can visit the bookstore in person at 126 Crosby Street in downtown New York and online at housingworksbookstore.org. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and more, and keep up with the bookstore through our online newsletter. We'll be back with another episode every other week. Thanks again for listening.